Well, if we focus on the wrong things, it can be really hard to be joyful. Uh, even if we just think about the news, in the news we've heard lately about wars, the war between Russia and Ukraine, the fact that we're supporting Ukraine, how is that going to impact us? The growing tensions between us and China, will there be a war, a war over Thailand, what's that going to look like? The economy, the stock market is going down, the interest rates are rising, we've got crime prevalent everywhere, murder rates are rising in big cities, cell phone thefts are rising. <laughs> We've got problems with politics. I mean, the way that people are so politically charged now is just incredible. It's either you're on one one side or the other other side. Uh, and we know we have huge cultural problems with morality. The way that the moral ethics, the moral code of those around us has just spiraled and decayed so quickly. And then if we focus on some of our personal problems, uh, we can feel joyless. Some of our own finances, some of us are dealing with job loss and we're all dealing uh, with inflation. That's why we had to go out to dinner tonight, right? <laughs> I mean, finances are a big issue. Health issues, sickness and disease, problems like that, uh, relationship issues, struggles, pains, hurts, being betrayed, and uh, just really wounded by those that we love. And then you add to that persecution. Uh, there's persecution from the world, and there's even persecution from the church. Uh, people who fight against us uh, because we can't see eye to eye on secondary or tertiary issues. And then to add to that, we have our own struggles with sin. So when we focus on the negative news and all the difficult circumstances around us, we can forget that God calls us God charges us, God expects us to be marked by joy. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at joy tonight. Uh, let's reread our verse for the weekend, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Well, remember uh, last night when we looked at the context for this passage, we looked at the pericope that it sets in. We began with Galatians 5.16, that incredible promise that's there for us in Galatians 5.16, where Paul says, but I say, this is what I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's that promise that we have. But that promise, in a sense, is contingent upon our choice because it's predicated upon whether or not we will choose to walk by the Spirit. We saw that we had died to the law 
And we're free to live now in the spirit. And in the same way, if we're in Christ, we've died to the flesh. And we're free to live in the spirit. And we have to choose to do so. And then we saw that list. And Paul said, these things are evident. They're clearly seen. They're not difficult to point out that list of the sins of the flesh. uh, Those things that pop up and they're gross and they're like that mold, that mold that was in my bathroom, that toxic mold potentially that my husband so graciously is going to deal with this weekend. And it's funny (laughs) because he sent me uh, a photo today. Do you have that photo I sent Yachty? (laughs) And I looked at that and thought, I want to fight like that against the works of the flesh, right? I mean, I want to get the hazmat suit on and say these things are toxic. These are dangerous. And we have got to fight against these things because they're like mold and they will destroy us and rot us out from the inside out. But instead, God promises that he has something new, something better for us. And for all of us who are in Christ, Christ, we have the ability to walk in this newness of life. You can ask the picture. <laughs> we saw that that newness, that new offer that we have is walking now in the fruit of the Spirit. That fruit meaning our behavior, this new behavior that God has rewired us for. As we're in Christ, we've received the Holy Spirit. Each one of us, as mind-blowing as it is, we have the third person of the triune God indwelling us, giving us the power and the capacity and even the desire to walk with consistency in the things that are lining up with his nature, his character, his person. So we need to, as 516 said, we looked at this last night, we choose to walk in the Spirit. 518 said we are to be led by the Spirit. 525 said we live by the Spirit. And 525 said again, we keep in step with the Spirit. And one of those fruits of the Spirit is joy. We are called to be marked by joy. So we have to say, what is joy? Uh, the Greek noun for joy is kara, and it means the experience of gladness. Just being glad, being joyful. When you are joyful, you are glad, and you experience joy. And the verbal form of, of kara is kairo, and that means to be in a state of happiness, a state of well-being, to be glad, to be rejoicing. And having studied through this a few years ago, I came up for myself with a definition of joy that I felt like uh, was a good summary of the way the New Testament describes joy. If you want to jot this down, you can. Uh, Joy is a settled attitude of extraordinary delight because that really comes from these Greek words for joy and being joyful, rejoicing. A settled attitude of extraordinary delight, as we'll see, independent of our circumstances, independent of our circumstances, 
but rooted our, in our relationship with and our obedience to Christ. So joy is a settled attitude of extraordinary delight, independent of our circumstances, rooted in our relationship with and obedience to Christ. Uh, joy is like Jesus said, the feeling that you get when you found something that was lost. Uh, Jesus used these words for joy six times in Luke 15. In Luke 15, uh, verses 5 through 7, Jesus talks about the shepherd with the lost sheep. Uh, in verse 5 of Luke 15, he says, And when he has found it, the shepherd finds his lost sheep. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. There's that Cairo. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice, Cairo, with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then he adds, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy, Kara. In heaven, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So again, Jesus using this to illustrate that feeling of joy when something valuable, when something precious to you is found. And then he goes on with the same illustration in Luke 15, 9 and 10. This feeling of joy that we get when something was lost and then it's found. He talks about a woman who lost some money. Uh, in verse 9 of Luke 15, he says, When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice, Cairo, with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy, Kara, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then finally, he goes on with that uh, beautiful parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the lost son, the son that rejected the father and went off and lived in the world and then he repented and he came back. And in verse 32 of Luke 15, it's the father speaking to the other son and he says, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad, Cairo, for this brother, your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. So the rejoicing that came to that father when his lost, spiritually lost, broken son repented and was restored in relationship to him. So for us to explore this call to joy, we're going to focus on one little verse. Uh, it's in your memory verse packet. You probably saw it tucked in there. This one, you guys should all get an A plus on because it's only 10 words in the ESV, seven words in the Greek. Philippians 4.4, 4, we're all going to get this before I'm done. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Okay, we're never going to forget this one. Philippians 4.4. 4. Uh, the New Living Translation, I like the way they begin this one. It says, always be full of joy. Always be full of joy. That's God's charge to us as Christians, as his people. People, again, who have his Holy Spirit. And you know, when Paul wrote this, Philippians 4.4, 4, uh, he wrote it to the church at Philippi. 
And it's interesting because uh, historians point out that the church at Philippi, that area, Philippi, was inhabited by retired Roman military people. Uh, after these Roman military people, uh, Roman military men retired, they would settle them in Philippi. So Philippi was traditionally known as the most Roman of all the Roman colonies. And what makes that interesting is a Roman colony, a Roman civilization, worshipped many gods. They had city gods, they had local gods, they had household gods, they even worshipped Caesar as God. So for these Christians in Philippi who had put their trust in Christ and turned from their sins, this was hard for them to be in this highly Roman culture. And then as we read through the four chapters of that book, we realize that there's a lot of tension even within that church. Uh, there's some factions in the church. There's some division and fighting in the church. So things were hard for them on the outside and hard for them on the inside as well. They were in a very tough place. And to top it off, we learn from the letter that when Paul wrote it, he himself was in jail. He was in prison when he wrote this letter. And you know what he was in prison for? Not doing anything wrong but he was in prison for doing something right, for preaching the gospel. Now think about that. If you were in prison and in prison for doing the right thing, what would you write to people? What would you ask them to do or tell them to do? I mean, clearly none of us are in jail right now, but we might have some really tough circumstances. If we're writing to someone, if we're talking to someone, communicating with someone, we know they're in difficult cir circumstances. We've got difficult circumstances. What's the first thing we're going to say? Are we going to say, hey, do whatever you can to get me out of this circumstance? Or you really need to hear how bad my circumstance is? No. I mean, if we're Paul, what we're going to say is rejoice. And it's funny because he didn't only say rejoice. Uh, this is a command. The verb tense there is the imperative tense. That means that this is a command. You are commanded as a follower of Christ to rejoice. We're all commanded to rejoice. And you might think, the guy's in jail. It's a hostile environment. There's infighting in the church. Why are they going to rejoice? I mean, are these people detached from reality? Do they not read the news? Uh, what is this? I mean, do they believe in unicorns and fairy tales? You know, is it a magical mystery tour? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, the reason that they're called to rejoice is because of reality. It's actually reality that drives them to rejoice. And we see that in the text. It says rejoice in the Lord. That's why we rejoice in the Lord. That is the reality for us. So the first point is be joyful because you're saved. Be joyful because you are saved. Christian joy is always predicated on our salvation. It's predicated on the fact that we are in the Lord. We rejoice, we are joyful, we are always joyful because we are in the Lord. 
And scholars point out that the verse right before Philippians 4.4, it ends with Paul making an appeal to some friends there in Philippi. And he says, these are people whose name is written in the book of life, in the end of Philippians 4.3. And then he says, rejoice. And scholars say this definitely would have... uh, brought the reader back to the teaching of Jesus in Luke 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke 10, we saw the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10 today. Uh, Luke 10, in the beginning of Luke 10, it says that Jesus appointed 72 people to go out and go before him and, in a sense, prepare the way before him uh, to begin to preach the gospel, to get people ready for the good news. And then if you look at or you jot down Luke 10, 17 through 20, uh, this is when those 72 come back to Jesus. So the 72 return, the pericope there in the ESV even says the return of the 72. And it says they returned with kara, with joy. So the 72 returned with joy in Luke 10, 17 through 20, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So this uh, apostolic call that Jesus had given these people as they were to go out and prepare the way for him, he said, you know, this is the, the privilege that I've given you. You have this power over the spiritual realm. Uh, These demons are subject to you. But look what he says in verse 20. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice. Do not Cairo in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice Cairo that your names are written in heaven. And you know what that means? That means we can have the same joy. If our names are written in heaven, we can have the same joy that the 72 had. We can have the same joy that the audience in Galatia had and in Philippi and throughout the New Testament. Because if our name is written in the book of life or written in heaven, it makes all the difference in the world and eternity. In Revelation chapter 20, we see the scene of the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment when everything is wrapped up, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And it says, the books are opened. And then in Revelation 20, 15, it says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So if we're in Christ, if we have that evidence that we talked about last night, if we believe the right doctrine, if we've responded rightly to the gospel with repentance and faith, and if there's evidence of it, if there's fruit of it, if there's behavior that's consistent with that, we can know for certain that our names are written in the book of life and therefore we have every reason And really the only reason for real joy, every single one of us. We've been saved, we've been promised eternal life, 
with Christ, we all, every one of us, has great reason for joy. Now, if you could turn in your Bible or just prepare to jot some of these down, I want to look at a few verses in Romans 8 that just kind of uh, highlight the joy that we should have as people who have been written in the book of life. Uh, some of the truths that are true of us because we are in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And if you want to, again, just write these references down and look them up later, or you can turn there with me. But remember that if you are in the Lord, these verses are talking about you. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now, if you are in Christ, that is you. There is no condemnation. Jesus paid your debt. Jesus paid for the wrath of God that your sins deserve, and you will never experience that wrath. Never. There is no condemnation. You will never be condemned. You are forgiven. You have great reason for joy. And then look at Romans 8, 38 and 39 at the end of the chapter. At the end of the chapter there, Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul says, For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul starts out there, I am sure. He's saying, I am completely convinced that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God if your name is written in the book of life. And should he, the audience think that he left something out, Paul puts in there. He puts in there in verse 39, as we just read, nor anything else in all creation. It is impossible for the Christian to ever be separated from God's love. It is impossible. You are safe if you are in Christ and your name is written in the book of life. You are safe and you have great reason for joy. And then go back up a little bit to my favorite verse, lots of people's favorite verse, Romans 8:28. One of those verses that I check to make sure it's there all the time. <laughs> Romans 8:28. It says, "And we know." Him uh, Paul writing saying, "You know this. We've talked about this. We've discussed this. You know this from experience. And we know that for those who love God, for those whose names are written in the book of life, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He's saying God is able to manage the events of your life, every single one of them. And not only is he able to manage them, but he is able to orchestrate them all together for good. All things work together for good. And even our pain, even our suffering contributes to that good because it makes us more into the people that he wants us to be. It makes us more into the people that we were designed to be, strengthening us and refining us. 
And it's interesting, there's a commentator who's very uh, reputable, very renowned, Doug Moo. Uh, His commentary on Romans is one of the best. And he said, anything that is a part of this life, even our sins, can by God's grace contribute toward good. Now, that in no way is saying that we want to sin, but what it's saying, God will take even our sins and somehow teach us, break us, instruct us, discipline us, use those things to make us more like Jesus. If you are in Christ, you're protected by a hand that filters everything through those nail-pierced scars. You have great reason for joy. And then if you look down a couple of verses to Romans 8.32. 8.32, I love this one. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is such a loaded promise if you really wrap your heart and your mind around that. Uh, I love what D.L. Moody said about that. Uh, He illustrated it like this. He said, you know, suppose you went into Tiffany Jewelry and the owner of Tiffany happened to be there, the guy who owns all the Tiffany's. And he sees you and he says, you know, I want to show you something in my back office. And he takes you to the back office and there's a big safe in there. And he opens up the safe and he brings out the most beautiful diamond, a priceless diamond. And you marvel at it. I mean, it's worth millions of dollars. And he asks you if you like it and you say, yes, of course. And he says, I'm giving it to you. Giving it to me. And he says, yes, you don't have to pay a dime for this. And Moody said, how how foolish would you be if you felt embarrassed to ask for a brown piece of paper to wrap it up in and carry it home? That's what this verse is saying. That's what this verse is teaching. We've been given Jesus. God crucified his own son for us. And now we're afraid that he's going to hold out on us some good thing? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said he's given us a Christ. Will he deny us a crust? No, he's not going to. If there is something that is truly for your best, truly for your good, truly for your spiritual good, God will give it to you. And we know that because he's given us Jesus. He's going to give us everything that we truly need. So if you are in Christ, if your name is written in the book of life, you are secure. And if you're that secure, you have great reason for joy. And then one more, Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Him saying, even if you're suffering, even though you're suffering, suffering will never have the final word. No, instead your future is promised and it is a glorious future. 
If your name is written in the book of life, your future is glorious and you have great reason for joy. And this is one of the reasons I'm so thankful that God communicated through the word, through the scriptures. He didn't show up and tell me all this one day. He didn't write it in the sky to be up there one day and gone the next. But again, he put this in the scripture so that we could read it again and again and again and know that this is his word and these are his promises to us. So you know, there might be some people out there that had a rough time growing up. Maybe your parents told you you were a loser all of your life. Or maybe you dated a guy that made you feel like trash and you'll never forget the way he treated you. Or maybe your own kids have rejected you. But if your name is written in the book of life, you're forgiven, you're safe, you're protected, you're secure. And those words, those circumstances do not have the final say. God does. Jesus does. And if you are in Christ, no matter what you've experienced, you have every reason to rejoice. There was a uh, Puritan, Octavius Winslow, uh, and this is what he said. He said, the believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. The child of God is from necessity a joyful man. His sins are forgiven his soul is justified, his person is adopted, his trials are blessings, his conflicts are victories, his death is immortality, his future is heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, and endless blessedness. With such a God, such a Savior, and such a hope, is he not, ought he not, to be a joyful man? Our duty because of what Christ has done for us. Our duty is to be joyful. And that's why Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And that's our second point. Be joyful in all circumstances. In all circumstances. That uh, word there, uh, pantote in the Greek, that's translated as always, it's interesting. It means always. <laughs> always. We are always to rejoice in the Lord. And we might say, well, we can't always be joyful because life is hard. And there are circumstances that are excruciating. And I agree with that. And so did Paul. He agreed with that as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians, for example, he's very transparent about the many sufferings that he endured. In the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, Paul writing to this church, these people that he was pouring himself out for, investing into, mentoring, discipling, he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. I mean, they were at the point of just giving up. Life was so hard. 
And then later in that same letter in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul lists some of the sufferings that he and his team endured for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5, he lists afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings. He was beaten, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 6, dishonor, slander, unknown, dying, punished. But then he says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And Paul uses that word for sorrowful 18 times in 2 Corinthians alone. Paul was no stranger to pain and to suffering and to excruciating circumstances. And although sorrow was his experience, he said joy was his reality. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Not rejoicing, although always sorrowful, but sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy was his reality. And here's a great passage from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, I love the picture that he paints here. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's saying here, everything that we suffer, whether it's persecution or sickness or financial ruin or even death, those things must be weighed in the balance with Christ it's like those uh, balances that you see to weigh money. And he's saying you take all that hardship and you put the glory of Christ, our future with Christ, our hope with Christ, and the suffering on different sides. And boom, the suffering is nothing. It weighs nothing. That's what he says. The weight there, the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, what we're going to receive is going to make that look like a drop in the bucket even though that's what we're experiencing right now, this is what we know to be true. We have our perspective differently. We rejoice. We rejoice in the midst of the pain, remembering that our difficulties are only for a moment. They will not last eternally. And for those who are in Christ, there is great reward on the other side. And to top it off, none of this is without purpose. Even in this life, our pains have purpose. We see that in the book of James. James 1, 2 through 4. Our men are studying James right now. And our women, next Bible study year, we're going to be doing James. So we're going to get to catch up with the men. Yeah, that's going to be fun. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, James 1, 2 through 4. Look what he says. Count it all Joy. Okay, count what all joy? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
nothing. Wow. How do we get to be that complete lacking nothing when we count it all joy when God refines us through difficult circumstances? Now, I love this Old Testament text. Uh, it's, it's interesting, and it creates another great visual picture for us. It's in Malachi, the book of Malachi. You can just jot down the reference if you want and look it up later. Malachi 3, 1 through 3, talking about what's going to happen in the future for the people of God. Uh, the prophet says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Okay, so God is coming, Christ is coming, the Lord is coming. Verse two, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Why? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, uh, God's people. He will purify them and refine them like gold and silver. So God is like this ancient metallurgist. Uh, he's saying someone who works with gold and silver and refines and purifies those metals. And back then, those uh, ancient metallurgists used to heat the silver and the gold up. They'd put the flame underneath that. And when they did that, the gold and the silver would begin to liquefy and the junk would bubble up to the top. Uh, they call that the dross. The impurities in the gold and the silver would bubble up to the top and the refiner would take those impurities off and then he would let it cool and he would fire it up again and he would do this again and again. And the picture for us is that that heat is like the trials. It's like the suffering that God allows in our life. And he heats us up as if we're gold or silver to purify us, to refine us. And, you know, it said that because they didn't have the technology that we have, they didn't have ways to monitor or measure whether the gold or the silver was completely refined. They say that the way that the metallurgist, the refiner, would know that the metal was pure was when he looked into it and he saw his own reflection. Now, if Christ is refining us, he wants to look into us and ultimately see his reflection. He wants to see the fruit of the Spirit in our life. That's what he's looking for. And that's why we can rejoice even in the midst of our trials and our pains and our sufferings. Because Christ is using these things to make us more like him. Jesus said in John 16, 20 and 22, uh, that we can rejoice like a woman who's giving birth to a child. Because although the pains of childbirth are strong and they're tough, the joy of having the child afterward is worth that pain. And that's what he's saying. The trials, the difficulties, they might be hard now, but what's coming after is going to make it all worth it. 
in John again, 16, 20 through 22, Jesus said, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world will Cairo. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into kara, into joy. And he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy, kara, that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one no one will take your joy from you. We are safe and secure. We can expect and even celebrate the great joy that is promised to us when we finally, ultimately get to experience Christ's victory over sin and darkness and even death. And that is promised to us. And that's why Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus himself, Hebrews 12.2, it says Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. It says Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. He knew what was on the other side. Just like the woman in the throes of childbirth knows what's coming and endures that agony. That's the way we're to endure our sufferings, knowing that we can rejoice because there's great, great glory on the other side. And I do think it's important to point out that as we think about these things and process these things and implement these things in our lives, that we let God's spirit do his work in us and that we not necessarily try to police others regarding their suffering and their joy. Because, you know, Jesus didn't do that. Uh, Jesus, the great physician, he did not do that. Uh, in John 11, when Jesus, his good friends, uh, Martha and Mary lost their brother Lazarus. And all three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were good friends with Jesus. And Lazarus died. Uh, Jesus went there and saw them. He talked with Martha. He talked with Mary. Mary was broken. She was weeping. She was sorrowful. Her brother had died. And it's interesting, in John eleven thirty three through 36, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jew said, see how he loved him. Now, it's interesting because we all know that Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet he broke with his friends. He wept with them. He understood that suffering and pain and death are hard. Uh, this is not the way things were created to be. It's sin that brought all of this stuff into the world. And God understands that. And we need to understand others too. When they're sorrowful and when they're hurting, we need to learn from Jesus. 
We need to be like the great physician. Jesus is called the great physician. And a physician knows when to administer medicine and how much to administer. Do I give a little? Do I give a lot? Maybe too much will kill someone. Maybe not enough will kill them as well. We need to be careful here. We need to be compassionate and wise and prayerful and not uh, cold and hard-hearted. When someone's broken or suffering, texting them three verse references and saying, shut up and leave me alone. You know, if you're in the Lord, you should be joyful. That's not what this is for. This is for us. We need to work this into us. We need to let Jesus transform us and come alongside our sisters and encourage them and love them with the love of Christ. Because even though we are to choose joy and we're commanded to be joyful, we always have to remember that that joy is not self-generated. It's generated by God and generated by his Holy Spirit, just like contentment is. We, saw, we see Paul address the topic of contentment in the same chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Paul saying, I know, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. He learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. And he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So despite our circumstances, he's saying, we're always to be content because we're in Christ, because Christ helps us to do it. And it's the same with joy. Despite our circumstances, we're to always be joyful because Christ, the Holy Spirit, helps us to be joyful. And there's that tension that's there. The joy is made possible by Christ and by his Holy Spirit. There's that indicative that we looked at last night, the Galatians 2.20. But it must be implemented in us. We must choose to implement that joy. The imperative there, the Galatians 5.24. And we have to live with those two truths at the same time. That joy is rooted in Christ and only provided by the Holy Spirit. And yes, we must choose to walk in it. If we don't, we're going to live our lives just like the world on the roller coaster. Things are going good, we're joyful. Our emotions are in a good place, we're joyful. We get bad news, we lose our joy. We don't feel good, we lose our joy. When we're up, we're joyful. When we're down, we lose our joy. That's the way it is with the world. You know how that feels how you can be rejoicing and have the joy of the Lord and that little bit of information comes in and boom, everything's over. Your whole countenance changes, the way you're thinking about things changes. We don't want to live like that because when we respond that way, it reveals that we still have part of us that's hinging our joy on our circumstances. 
We want our joy to be consistent across the board. And then we, like Paul, can deal with the highs and we can deal with the lows, but we can learn the secret there because really our joy, our contentment is rooted in Christ and our relationship with Christ. We can be joyful always. Again, we are people who have the third person of the triune God living within us. We're not called to live on that roller coaster. We are called to live joyfully. We see that in Psalm 4 7. Psalm 4 7, the psalmist says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. That's saying the world, the circumstances of the world might be great, but I have even more joy because of my relationship with you. The joy predicated on relationship and not circumstances. So what are some ways that we can learn to do this? Like Paul, he learned this secret. What are some ways that we can learn? Uh, funny, but one of the greatest things that we can do is what we're doing right now. Uh, coming to things like retreats. If you look at Psalm 122.1, this is a Psalm of David, Psalm 122.1. Uh, David says, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of Yahweh. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Uh, David recalling the joy that he felt when he was invited to go up to Jerusalem with fellow uh, pilgrims to celebrate the feasts, the appointed feasts. Uh, it's funny, I read the New American Commentary said, for David, the prospect of corporate worship in Jerusalem delighted him. And then I thought this was funny. It says, though the trip would doubtless entail considerable effort and expense, it was well worth it because at the heart of worship was joy in the Lord. I mean, here we are, right? With uh, considerable effort and expense. We had to pay money to be here. We had to, you know, butcher our schedules to get here. We had to make a lot of changes to be here, but it is well worth it because here we are corporately as a body of believing sisters in Christ, being able to worship together. And it's not just about hearing the teachings. You guys know that. I mean, the teachings are great, but that's not the retreat. It's not the teachings. It's spending the night together. It's stuffing two people into the same bed, right? <laughs> I mean, it's eating together and pulling things up in our suitcases and living out of a suitcase for a while, being pulled away from normal life, focusing on other people rather than ourselves, as we learned so much about this morning being able to look at others and listen to others, worship together, be convicted by the Spirit together, have great conversation and communication and make changes together as friends. That's hard, but it truly does bring joy. And we're again blessed because we've got two more years we're locked into, right? <laughs> Uh, another one is the Bible. The Bible brings us joy because the Bible contains the promises of God. Uh, even the things we just read in Romans 8, these are in the Bible. So we must be faithful Bible readers 
as people who have their names written in the book of life. Psalm 19, 7 and 8. Psalm 19, 7 and 8 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's the scripture, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That's the truths, God's promises. His promises found in his word, they bring us joy because they remind us of reality. They remind us of what's real and true and eternal and will last. Another one, of course, is prayer. Uh, Prayer brings us joy. Prayer brings us joy. Uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, if we look at the whole passage there. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pouring our hearts out before God brings us joy because we know that he hears. We know that he hears and we know that he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. And we know that he knows everything. He knows what will happen if he answers that prayer in the way that we want him to. And so we can confidently pour our hearts out before him and say, God, you know what's best for me. You know if I should have this and you know what if I shouldn't have this. You know what this is going to look like in a month or five years or 10 years down the road. So we can pour ourselves out before him in prayer and have that joy knowing that he hears and he promises to answer his children. And then thankfulness. Thankfulness is so important. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Because we rejoice, we pray, and that thankfulness, it gets our perspective right. And it feeds the joy. We read our Bible, we pray, we're thankful, and we're joyful. We need to get better at being thankful. The more we're thankful, the more we become joyful. Because again, thankfulness is a great tonic for our perspective. It helps us to really get our perspective right. Uh, There's an interesting verse in Ephesians 4.26. You've probably heard it before in some context, but it says, be angry and do not sin. And then it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So that's an interesting verse. And it's saying, don't close your day in anger, even if your anger is justified. But it's not right to close your day in anger. In the same way, don't close your day without joy. I would say don't close your day without joy, even when your sorrow is justified. Close your day with joy. I would suggest at the end of the day, just jotting down something that you can be thankful for that day. 
Just something, and something specific. You know, uh, not very big, general, vague things like, you know, thank you for my kids, or, you know, thank you for my house, or whatever, but something specific. Uh, thank you for that good laugh that I had today at lunch with my friends. Or thank you for the beautiful ocean and the sunset that we got to look at for a while. Or thank you for that amazing ice cream bar. I mean, just something specific like that. If we can go to bed with that, if we can complete our day with that, it makes a big difference and it helps us to close our day with our perspective right. Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, showing us that joy is a matter of righteousness and peace and not circumstances. So remembering there are so many things to be joyful. Now, there's one thing that we need to know too, and that is that there is something that will keep us from joy, and that is unrepentant sin. That's when we're back on the flesh side, unrepentant sin. We see that in Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, this is a Psalm of David after David had sinned against God and rebelled against God by entering into that unlawful relationship with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51 verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David asking God to cleanse him from what he knew he did wrong. And then verse 12 of that same Psalm, Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy, the joy of my salvation, the joy of being in the Lord. Restore that to me, the joy that accompanies that. You know, when David looked across that roof and he saw Bathsheba and he took her unlawfully, that probably provided a short and temporary thrill. But you know what? He lost his joy. And that's what sin does. You can get that short and temporary thrill. I mean, it can last for a few days or weeks or months or whatever it is. But I guarantee you, you're going to lose your joy because you're not obedient to God. And sin never, never makes us happy. You know how we know that sin never really makes us happy? Because if sin really made us happy, you know who would be the happiest being in the universe? Satan, right? And that's not true. Jesus is the happiest person in the universe. We know that's Jesus. Sin does not make us happy. Our obedience brings joy and not sin. Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, talking about that joy that comes from obedience. Uh, God's people in Habakkuk were living in a hard time. Uh, their enemies were prospering. The prophet Habakkuk is crying out to God, asking why. And God says, I will deal with the wicked when the time is right. But for you, you need to be obedient. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, he says then, Okay, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. 
the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, even though everything goes wrong, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will choose to be joyful because my joy is rooted in my relationship with God and my obedience to him and not all of these circumstances. Well, what if you're thinking right now, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I mean, when, you know, the fig's not blossoming and there's no olive oil and there's no herd in the stalls and there's nothing to eat, I am not rejoicing. I don't care if I'm a Christian or not. I'm not going to have joy. Well, you know what? If you do that, and remember, we all struggle with sin, and we might have a moment when we give into that. If we do that, you know what we are communicating to the world around us, to the people around us? That the gospel's really not enough for joy. That the gospel really isn't the good news that it claims to be. That it's not enough to really make you rejoice, even when things go wrong. And I think that's why Paul said in Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is so important. This is critical that we get this. So the final point here is be aware of the difference your joy makes. I mean, it's really critical that we get this. There's an interesting passage in the book of Titus Titus 2.10, uh, talking about um, employees in a sense. Employees, it says, not pilfering, not stealing from their employer, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Uh, this charge, this call for us as believers to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior and it's interesting there, that word adorn in the Greek is cosmeo. You know what word we get from that? Cosmetics. Right, cosmetics. Yes, we need to make the gospel attractive is what it's saying. Adorn the gospel, make it attractive. So it's a time for us to stop right now and think, how do I look? And not physically, but spiritually. When I'm at home. When my husband's there, when my kids are there, when my friends and family are around me, how do I look spiritually? Am I making the gospel look attractive? Am I being an attractive person? The way that we can be attractive is by being joyful. Joy makes us attractive and it makes the gospel attractive. You've all heard of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, the gospel is the gospel of happiness. It's called the glorious gospel of the blessed God. A more correct translation would be the happy God. He said, well then, adorn the gospel by being happy. Adorn the gospel by being a cheerful countenance and leading a happy life. That's what we're called to do. If we want people to truly believe that the gospel is the good news that we claim that it is, then we need to be joyful. 
we need to be joyful. It's important that we be joyful. Because again, if people are watching us and we're claiming one thing about the gospel and living just these miserable downcast lives, they're going to say that gospel is really not as powerful as we make it out to be. Think about uh, your husband, for example. How is your lack of joy impacting your husband? Uh, a critical verse for husband wives is the first Peter 3, 4, where it talks about the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That gentle and quiet spirit, uh, scholars say in the Greek, really reflects a spirit that is absolutely confident in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. A spirit that doesn't get discouraged and downcast and overly despairing when things don't go her way, but one who says it's okay. I know God. I know who he is. I'm not going to be the one who's sour and miserable and always bringing everybody else down. That's the gentle and quiet spirit, the one who trusts in God and is confident in God. Number 6, 24 through 26, the ironic blessing says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. That really means to smile upon you and give you peace. God smiles upon us. God's face shines upon us. It's important that we be people who smile too. I mean, if you have, you know, family members that say, why do you always look so miserable? <laughs> Maybe you need to make an effort to smile more. Some of us just look miserable. I mean, it's not like we even want to, but it's like we just, in our natural expression, have an era of misery, right? We've got to choose to smile to communicate that joy, to be happy, because it makes a big difference to the people around us. It really does. What about your kids? I mean, we're telling them that they need to, you know, believe the gospel. They need to put their confidence in the gospel. They need to follow Jesus. And then we're joyless all the time. You know what they're going to say? What Carlin mentioned this morning, you guys are just hypocrites, right? You say all these things, but you are unhappy, miserable people. You, my unbelieving friends' parents are more happy than you. Uh, that's not good, right? We have got to, again, I say, rejoice, command from Paul. We have got to get this. We've got to choose to be joyful people. Maybe it's even our, our sisters in Christ our friends in our discussion groups, they're like, come on, <laughs> be a little more joyful. You've got a lot to be happy about. You have to think about how your actions, how your lack of joy impacts those around you. And you've got to say, you know what, if I care about others, if I love others, I will choose to be joyful because it gives a proper view of the gospel. Some of us might need to really say, God, I need to make some changes tonight, just in the way I respond to things. 
I, I don't know if you remember the old Saturday Night Live skit called Debbie Downer. You know, it's interesting. I watched the first episode of that on a YouTube video the other night, and it was funny. Um, it debuted in 2004, and it only had less than 10 appearances total of Debbie Downer. And yet everybody knows Debbie Downer. There's even a Merriam-Webster's dictionary entry for Debbie Downer. It says, a negative or pessimistic person, a person who speaks only of the bad or depressing aspects of something and lessens the enthusiasm or pleasure of others. You know, even the world gets it, right? We don't want to be the Debbie Downer, the one who's always pointing out what went wrong. You know, the one that walks up and you know they're going to tell you everything you did wrong. It's like, I know, I know, I know. Or, this is such a neat testimony to Matthew Henry, and it's funny because I rarely quote or refer to Matthew Henry, and I have three times this weekend. Matthew Henry, his biographer, wrote about him. His biographer said, Henry possessed the desirable disposition and power of looking on the bright side of everything. He said there was a loveliness in his spirit and a gladness in his heart, which caused others to feel how happy a thing it must be to be a Christian. People are going to want to be a Christian if they think that it makes you happy. It brings you joy. He says, it, he wrote, this cheerfulness pervaded his entire life. And then he added one reason one reason of the great power of his life over many who were not decidedly religious men lay in the constancy of that happy spirit that they saw and they coveted. You know, if we chose to say we will be joyful, we will rejoice in the Lord, we have every reason to be joyful, every single one of us, we will be joyful always. We will rejoice in the Lord always. We will experience some very difficult circumstances, and yet we won't be marked by those circumstances. We're going to be marked by our relationship with Christ, and our joy is going to be based on that. And if we keep remembering, again I say rejoice, that this joy has the ability to impact countless people around us really witnessing to the power of the gospel to change us from the inside out, adorn it and make it attractive, I wouldn't be surprised if people come to us and want to know that Jesus. We don't have to have books written about us like Matthew Henry. We don't have to do great things, but exhibiting Christian joy just saying, I will choose to exhibit Christian joy in my life will make a big difference. We started out by just thinking about the fact that the world is messed up, and it is messed up, and things do get really bad. And I find myself saying, you know, things are really bad. They're getting worse and worse, and it's scary thinking about what it's going to come to. But I found this quote that I thought was so fun. Uh, it says, the early Christians did not say, in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, they said, 
look what has come into the world. You know, and that should be us. Not look what the world is coming to, but look who has come into the world. Jesus, the one who saves us from all of this, sets us free and gives us eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these women that you have called to be here tonight to hear this teaching on joy. God, I thank you that if we are in Christ, if our name has been written in the book of life, we have every reason to rejoice. God, I pray if there is anybody here who hasn't yet really responded rightly to the gospel with repentance and faith, uh, doesn't know with certainty that she too is an heir of eternal life, I pray, God, that you would give her the courage and the strength and the fortitude that it takes to put her trust in Jesus and turn from her sins and be one who can rejoice tonight. And I pray that the angels would rejoice as one sinner who was lost was found God, please help us to be people who rejoice always. We know this life is hard. Jesus told us this life would be hard. Paul's life was hard. And yet we are called to rejoice. Help us to learn to do this, to get off the roller coaster of circumstances, but to be rooted in our relationship with you and the truths of your word and the things that really matter. And God, I pray that if we have failed uh, to to be a witness of joy the way that we should in our homes, in our neighborhood, even at church. I pray, God, that we would stop and make a commitment to you this weekend, tonight even, before we go to bed, that we would say, God, I am sorry. I'm sorry for not being a joyful Christian. I choose to repent of that lack of joy. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to help me to live joyfully, to be joyful, to be a different person, that when I go home at the end of the weekend, when I live into next week and next month and next year, people will say, something changed in you. I see Jesus in you. And I want to follow that same Christ that gives you that kind of joy. God, we thank you for Jesus. And we close our prayer in his precious name. Amen.